I'm going to ask you if you have a Bible or have access to a copy of the scriptures, would you join me in the New Testament book of James? Last week, we began a series in this letter, a very old, a very ancient, maybe the earliest letter that we have in the New Testament. James, a leader of the church, writing to a beleaguered community who had suffered much and instructing them on how they should live their lives, even in the midst of suffering, and how they can find the wisdom uh, that they need, even in times of trials. And so we're going to return to that letter, and this week we are going to read chapter 2. Last week we read all of chapter 1. This week we're going to read all of chapter 2. It's a little bit more of an extended passage, so I ask for your patience, uh, but these are words worth hearing. And so now let's hear James uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones that oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If our brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. If you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father, those are challenging, convicting words. Those are frightening words in some ways. And so I ask you now for help. I ask that you would give us the courage to be confronted this morning, to be challenged. I ask that you would give us clarity and understanding and humility, a willingness to hear what you say even when it is difficult, trusting that your word is what brings life. Open our eyes and our ears, our minds and our hearts to receive what you are saying and to be changed by it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year, in a village on the Micronesian island of Pompeii, there is a competition. This competition has been going on longer than anyone can remember. And it is a competition between the men of this village over who can grow the largest yam. You know what yam is, right? It's kind of like a sweet potato. Uh, these uh, yams are grown in secret, tended to in the middle of the night. It can take up to 10 years to cultivate the yam that you're going to enter into the competition. They grow to a length of 13 feet and up to 200 pounds. That's a big sweet potato. <laughs> The British journalist Will Storr uses that competition as an example of a game, a universal game, a game we all play. It's in the title of his book where he talks about that example, and the title of that book is called The Status Game. And drawing from a number of different academic fields, from anthropology to biology, Will Storr shows how we as human beings are hardwired to seek connection with a group and then to rank ourselves and others within that group. We are hardwired to seek belonging, acceptance within a community, and then to measure worth, our worth, others' worth within that community. And this is a very serious and a very powerful game. It produces some of our deepest emotions, positive and negative. It can lead to astonishing accomplishments, 200 pound yams, but also profound harm. And in the passage that Trina just read for us, James addresses that game in the church in the Christian community. And we do have to admit that when we walk in those doors, we do not leave behind the impulse to connect and rank, to belong 
and measure. Perhaps it's not according to our yam-growing ability, but it is using things like wealth, which James addresses. For us Presbyterians, it's things like education, intelligence, achievement in certain vocational fields, certain jobs. We play that game with cultural markers like dress and speech and skin pigment, taste in arts and entertainment and politics. And James shows us how that is a very serious game for the church that involves eternal implications. And so if we can't leave the game behind when we walk in those doors, then the question is, how should we play it? That question goes to the heart of other questions like, kind of community should we be? How should we relate to one another? With those questions in mind, I want to come to the teaching of James and let him teach us how to play the game. And he shows us that to play the game well, we need to know the rules and we need to have a strategy. So first of all, we need to know the rules. And James from the very beginning of this chapter, lays down the basic rule of no partiality. In other words, he's saying, you play the status game by not playing the status game, or at least not playing into the way it has typically been played throughout human history. But what does that mean? What does that look like? we need to realize that James doesn't invent this rule of no partiality. And he doesn't get it from some general sense of universal human rights. No, James cribs this rule from the Old Testament. He, throughout this chapter, quotes and echoes Leviticus chapter 19. And in that section of the book of Leviticus, God through Moses is instructing his people on how they should set up their justice system, his design for their justice system. And he says justice should be not only for those who can pay for it, it should be for rich and poor alike, no partiality. But there's more. Because God's design for justice isn't just protection. Justice isn't just the protection of property rights and economic fairness. Justice, the fullness of justice, according to Scripture, is the most famous statement from Leviticus 19, which is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not just the protection of rights, it's the pursuit of good. It's not just fairness, it gives way to mercy. Active compassion. 
And James, following Jesus, says that's the whole game. That's the whole law. That is the whole of God's will. And because of that, it applies not just to the formal courtrooms of ancient Israel, but it applies to the informal courtrooms of our attitudes, our prejudices, our words, and our actions towards each other. James is saying the basic rule of the Christian community, here's how you play the status game. It is no partiality in the pursuit of love. This doesn't mean that there are no differences and there are no distinctions. James will go on in the next chapter to say that there are some in the community who should teach and some who shouldn't. This also doesn't mean that everyone gets what they want all the time or gets to do what they want to do all the time. See, love is the pursuit of the highest good, not accommodation to every idiosyncratic personal preference. What this does mean is that the typical standards of status from yams to letters in the front or the back of one's name. Typical standards of status should not limit the movement of mercy. Typical standards of status should not lead us to withhold love, to escape the demand that we love our neighbors as ourselves. We do not limit love to those whom we like or those who most benefit us. That's the rule of the game. And remember, who are the original recipients of James's letter. They are a rejected, impoverished, low status community. So imagine what it would have felt like for a wealthy person to show up on a Sunday. It's not just a natural attraction to that, That's also incredibly useful, beneficial. How useful, how beneficial to have someone show up who has some money and some influence in our current situation. And then imagine the opposite of someone who has more needs than we have the resources to meet. Someone who's another embarrassing mark on our already tarnished reputation. Can you see how much easier it would have been to extend the love of hospitality, to extend a warm welcome to one and not the other? But James says that's not the way the game should be played. That's not how we should measure who or how we welcome within the Christian community. James says to this embattled community, 
don't replicate how you have been treated in how you treat one another. And instead, bear witness to a better alternative, a better way of being in community. Instead, bear witness to the beauty of the God who chooses the poor to be rich in faith, to be heirs of the kingdom. So how are we doing Walnut Creek? How are we playing this game? I once belonged to a church where a couple began to visit on Sundays, and that, in that couple, both husband and wife had been educated to a PhD level in all Ivy League institutions, Harvard, Columbia, Stanford. And I saw James's scenario play out in my own heart. How much easier was it to welcome them, pursue them, than the couple who spoke with a thick accent and lived in a trailer? So how are we doing, Walnut Creek? We let James give us a little holy discomfort Will we let him surface the status symbols that matter to us? Will we let him examine the rankings that might cause us to withhold mercy? Will we let him examine what makes it easier to love someone and what makes it harder? And do we use that to escape the demand to love our neighbor as ourselves? Some say that we are living in an environment that is increasingly negative towards the Christian faith. And maybe that's true. Let's say that is true. What should we do in response? What does James say we should do in response? Should we defend ourselves? Should we go on the offensive? Should we attack? No. We should play a better game. We should embody a better alternative. We should bear witness to the beauty of God's design for relationships rather than the vitriol and the vindictiveness that we see on our screens. That's our response to negativity to the Christian faith. It is to embody a better alternative. So how are we doing, Walnut Creek? This is hard. This is really hard. There are moments of honesty where, because I've been in the church for a really long time and because I know my own hearts, there are moments of honesty, even this week as I prepared this sermon, where I think, this is impossible. This is an impossibly utopian vision. This is ridiculous. How could we do this? 
And so let's ask that question, how can we do this? How can we follow these rules? How can we become this alternative? And we see in James that we need not only to know the rules, knowing the rules isn't enough. That will lead to despair. (laughs) And so in addition to knowing the rules, we also need to have a strategy. And the strategy that James gives to us, the way for us to follow these rules, for us to play this game, is in a word, faith. James chapter 2, verse 1, no partiality. How? As you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he comes back in verse 14 to that strategy and he expands and he develops and he explains it. And that's why, even though there's a lot here that we cannot dig into this morning, that's why we're considering this chapter as a whole. Because beginning in verse 14, James is not participating in a 16th century theological debate. No, he is funding the project that he has set up in the first part of the chapter. He is saying, here here is how this impossibly utopian vision, here's how it is possible. Here's how you can do it. The works that he talks about here, the works that are inextricably linked to faith, are the works of compassion, the works of mercy, the works of love that he is calling us to. Now, he does here correct a false view of faith, and it's a view that, that exists even today. And it, it, it kind of, it's the couch potato approach to faith. It's that faith looks like me sitting here on the couch with my Cheetos, watching Jesus do his thing. And I might be a super fan, I might have seen all the deleted scenes. I might know all the canonical episodes and the non-canonical episodes. I might know all of the players in the show and their backgrounds and all that. I might know all of that, but I'm still sitting on the couch. And James says, that's not faith. You're sitting there with the demons. That's not faith. Faith is what activates us. Faith is what moves us off the couch. It is what involves us. Faith is what joins us to Jesus and joins us not only to what Jesus has done, but to what Jesus is doing. Faith makes us not observers, but participants. And James sees that pattern in Abraham the founding father of the nation of Israel, and in Rahab, a pagan Canaanite prostitute. Talk about different status. But in both, he sees how they were joined to the mission, the purpose, the work of God by faith. But how does that happen? How does faith involve us? How does faith produce these kinds of works. Well, do you remember where James got his rule from? 
Where did he get the rule of no partiality in the pursuit of love? From Leviticus. From Leviticus chapter 19. And that location is important because it comes after Leviticus chapters 1 to 16. And in that section of the book of Leviticus, God through Moses instructs his people on how they are to come into his house, how they are to come to the tabernacle, the place of his presence, the place where what the Old Testament calls his glory dwells. And only then, only after he has instructed them how to come, does he then instruct them how to go and love their neighbors as themselves? And that order is not accidental because it is as they come to the glory, the beauty of God, as they are forgiven by him, reconciled to him, fed by him, as they hear from him of who he is and who they are, I am the Lord your God, you are my people. It is only as they come to his glory that they are able then to then go and reproduce, replicate his glory, his beauty, in their relationships, in their community. And that's the movement of work-producing faith. James chapter 2, verse 1, one more time. No partiality. How? Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Who? Who is Jesus? He is the Lord of glory. See, James isn't dismissing our need for status, our need for worth, our need for belonging. He is saying, come to Jesus. Come to the glory of the one who gave himself to forgive you, to reconcile you, to crown you as kings and priests in the holy nation of God, to make you God's treasured, precious possession. Come to that glory and find all of the status, all of the worth, all of the belonging that you could want or need and even more. And then go and replicate that glory. Replicate that beauty in how you love one another. A few years ago, archaeologists uncovered, found a 6th century mosaic in southern Turkey. It had been part of the floor of an ancient church. In this mosaic was the image of a peacock. And peacocks were an ancient Christian symbol of the resurrection. It was thought that peacocks ate poisonous snakes and then transformed that poison into their beautiful feathers. And so it was an image of the resurrection of Jesus. It was an image of new life. And, And there is a writing on that mosaic that says that it was created by a slave. It was created by a slave who had been liberated, who had been freed. And he made that mosaic in celebration of his new life. 
That is the work of faith. It is us in the mosaic of our relationships, in the mosaic of our community, creating a beauty that doesn't gain us more status, but celebrates the status that we have been given through the glorious one. So isn't that a better game? Isn't that a better game than the one we see being played around us day in and day out? Let's come to the glorious one together and play that game. Let's pray. Father, again, as I started this sermon, I come and and ask you for help. You have given us such a high calling. You have given us such a high standard as a community. And it is beautiful, it is good, it is attractive. I think so many of us long for it. We want to be a part of something like that. But Father, we also know our own hearts. And we've experienced the reality of church relationships and somehow times how broken they can be. And so we ask for your help as we long to become that beautiful vision We also ask that you would give us faith. Would you give us the kind of faith that that does not leave us in passivity, but that joins us to your movement of mercy, that joins us in your project of creating this beautiful community that reflects your glory, the glory that is given to us in Jesus. Would you bring this about at Walnut Creek, the other churches around our city and around the world? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?